So we're about a week out from Thanksgiving. I hope you are recovering uh, in terms of the gluttony that likely ensued. Hi there, this is Jim Minnery. Once again here on I'm Glad You Said That. And uh, thanks so much for tuning in today. Really appreciate it. We're very fortunate um, to have the Alaska Policy Forum as part of our landscape in Alaska, and uh, I get to speak with Sarah Montelbano uh, on a couple of different articles that she wrote recently that I think are very important for those of us who care deeply about education and uh, and how we can improve it. We have one article that she wrote <coughs> that we'll discuss today called How We Spend matters more than what we spend. And that's a very very interesting topic that I'll read a little bit about so we can get prepared uh, when I have the interview here shortly. But we also have um, an opportunity to discuss with Sarah, who actually is the policy manager. I should note that. She used to be the education uh, director or manager at the Alaska Policy Forum, and now she is the um, the the policy manager in general of she deals with education and healthcare as well as fiscal issues and so uh, she also wrote an article called charter schools are public schools um, and you know it, 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 they're tied together obviously in terms of education. But what's interesting is that in the article that she writes about how we spend matters than more than what we spend, there's a group called the Edunomics Lab, E-D-U-N-O-M-I-C-S, Edunomics Lab at Georgetown University. So this is not some conservative right-wing group. It's out of Georgetown University, which is very liberal uh, in, in many ways. Uh, university and what they find in in this article that she wrote there's a bubble or a, a chart and what we what we find that and I'll read it is surprisingly as a school's per pupil expenditures increase the percentage of proficient students declines This trend, although there are exceptions, challenges the conventional belief that more funding directly translates to better outcomes. Furthermore, the chart reveals that the school spending less than $10,000 per student not only consistently performed near or above the statewide proficiency average, but were also almost entirely correspondent schools or charter schools. And... So one of the interesting quotes, I think, is from a guy from Stanford University, actually. Uh, He's a fellow at the Hoover Institute and says, you can no longer trust that you can't just drop in a pile of money, expect good performance to come out. And man, oh man, doesn't it seem as though that that's just obvious? We have continued to spend more and more and more money, and the results haven't gotten us to where... Uh, we'd like in terms of uh, test results and graduation rates and all the other stuff. Uh, and what I think is 
is profound is that we're trying to put a square peg in a round hole in terms of how our current educational system is set up. Uh, you know, what we, I think on both sides of the political aisle need to realize is that it's not working. Not that there aren't pockets of good things that are going on. Of course there are. There always are. But the reality is that the the schools in general have been declining. You only have to talk to uh, colleges who are saying that they are having to get kids back up to speed on proficiency and basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, so, but is, you know, it, the, the other reality, I guess, is that we need to focus more on what has changed about our society since it was created, our current school structure, and does it still apply? And how much are we expanding vocational schooling which I talked to Sarah about here in a little bit. I will talk to Sarah about um, in terms of opportunities for kids to be able to um, realize that hey, that maybe not they may not be able to master algebra, um, but they have a skill set in you know some other arena that is using a different part of their brain, and it's good to have that um, you know at an early stage in their high school development rather than pushing and slogging through and then eventually you know that leads to can lead to bad outcomes so um the other thing i think is uh interesting and, I, and we'll talk with sarah about this as well today is that um charter schools have even though they've typically done so much better um and you only need to look at how the lottery system has been instituted so that people are trying to get into those schools and uh, and, and many times are not able to because of, it's this random uh, drawing. But the reason why they're wanting to get into those schools is because they're actually performing well and they're, uh, and they're making a, a more personalized educational plans for these kids. And you know, there are some things that you can read that the public schools um, think of charter schools as, you know, uh, um, a, an in-law or a relative to be, you know, either admired or uh, um, tolerated. But then you also hear about some public schools that are downright hostile to uh, charter schools, even though charter schools are actually public schools themselves. And so we'll talk with Sarah Montalbano at the Alaska Policy Forum here in a bit about what it means to be a charter school, um, the growth of charter schools, as well as homeschooling. We're not going to go into that in great detail, but uh, you'd like to think that we can get to a place where we can provide more opportunities for kids to thrive in the state of Alaska in terms of um, how they're educated. And it's a massive topic, obviously. Uh, we've been very much in favor, Alaska Family Council has, in advancing school choice measures. I've said this before. It's been a little bit disappointing in, in that we had Mike Dunleavy, who was the superintendent of schools, a principal, a school board president. His whole career um, was in education. And we also had Betsy DeVos on the federal level. Uh, you know, heading up the Department of Education under Trump. And so it seemed like the perfect alignment 
to be able to make significant changes. And yet, you know, a lot of us are still scratching our heads as to why that never did actually happen. Uh, in terms of significant progress regarding vouchers, regarding more choices for kids, more charter um, school opportunities, or even just um, more changes within the, the the system, the current public education system that is um, obviously something is awry. So I'm looking forward to chatting with Sarah. I hope you'll stick around for the um, the next couple segments. She's a fascinating young woman. We're very blessed to have her in the state of Alaska as a young uh, mind that is full of creativity and passion. And so thanks for tuning in, folks. You're listening to Jim Minnery here, and I'm glad you said that. Uh, it is Wednesday, November 9th. Thanksgiving is over. Now we uh, start looking into the Christmas stretch. Blessings to you, and we'll be right back. Jim Minnery here on I'm Glad You Said That. Really grateful to have Sarah Montalbano on the show. Did I say that right, by the way? I want to say it right. Montalbano. <laughs> Montalbano, but you're close. Montalbano. Okay. What is Montalbano. The, uh, Sarah is the policy director for the Alaska Policy Forum, and very grateful to have you on the show today. What's, what's uh, Montalbano? What is, the, uh, what is the background for that? Italian, Montalbano. Uh, my father was yeah, Italian, yeah, so okay. yes, exactly. Well, we need to do some kind of a joint Italian fundraiser. I was just watching this show <laughs> yesterday. I hadn't ever seen it before. I was at the Alaska Club, and it's this guy Jose, some super famous five-star Michelin chef named Jose something, but he's mm-hmm. with his three daughters touring Spain, and. Uh, uh, you know, going to all these great restaurants. It was like, oh my gosh, I want to make paella. That's my goal right now. Um, but I'm <laughs> sure, but I'm sure you have all sorts of great uh, Italian recipes as well. So we can go into that uh, maybe at another time. But um, <laughs> so let's get started here. What first of all, how long have you been in Alaska? I know that you have um, all sorts of accolades and wonderful credentials as the policy manager in terms of writing about education and healthcare and fiscal issues. And uh, you're a visiting fellow, I noticed, uh, with the Independent Women's Forum, which is uh, close to me because I've been working with them quite a bit lately on our Riley Gaines events that we just completed last week. Um, yes. And so they're a very impressive group. And uh, yeah, so just give us the the background on um, and who you are and what got you to Alaska and how long have you been up here and all that scoop. Absolutely. Uh, so I was born and raised in Wasilla, Alaska. Um, what I always say to my out-of-state friends is, yes, that's Sarah Palin's home. That's that's uh, Wasilla, the very same one. Uh, and I'm also Sarah, so that's uh, always a funny joke. But I was born and raised there. I went to Montana State University for uh, college and uh, I'm back at Alaska Policy Forum. Last year, I was the education policy analyst, so that is still my specialty in a sense. It's very close to my heart. 
uh, school choice and fiscal issues, but I also do cover uh, health care and state fiscal issues and really whatever else comes onto our plate at Alaska Policy Forum. I'm also a visiting fellow at the Independent Women's Forum, and I'm glad you mentioned it because that is where I end up getting a lot of my writing on energy and environmental stuff out. Uh, I just I have that extracurricular that I really love doing. Um, and I'm also with Young Voices as a writer and contributor there. So Young Voices, obviously, it's sort of self-explanatory, but I hadn't heard of it until then. Is it a um, cross-political forum, or is it mainly conservative voices, or how does that work? Sure. Young Voices, so I'm Northwest Regional Leader. I'm looking primarily for talent in these Northwest regions. Young Voices casts a really big tent, so there's only really a few issues that we we kind of stay away from, but for the most part, we are looking for big tent, kind of center-right thinkers, but mostly heterodox. So if you have an interesting point of view or perspective on something, we our, our writers run the gamut of opinions. Uh, we have people talking on all sorts of things, technology, privacy, uh, fiscal issues, education, environment, uh, healthcare. Uh, you name it, we have a writer talking about it right now, getting placed into national publications as well as in their local regions. So I'm very proud to be a part of that organization um, and get to lead here in the Northwest. Oh, that's really cool. It just makes me want to be much more assertive in, uh, you know, organizing the under 35, you know, um, market in our area and we do in in some ways you know like I was very encouraged by um, the uh, students for life chapter just started recently um, and it's Mm -hmm. by a young man uh, uh, out of uh, Holy Rosary Academy here in Anchorage and when we had the, the kickoff it was amazing how many young people were there um, it seemed like the majority of them were from Holy Rosary Academy, but there were um, mm-hmm. there were young folks from all over. And, and I've had that experience before where we've had, you know, a, a few speakers in the last um, year or so where we've um, had younger speakers themselves. We just had Riley, who's just 23. We had Will oh, Wynn, yeah. who's, um, you know, a, a young guy as well. I mean, and uh, and then we even had uh, Chloe Cole, who's only 19. Um, wow. But is has become a profound voice for that um, movement regarding those who are, have detransitioned and, and warning about the the scary um, malpractice that's being pra- that's being perpetrated on on culture right now in in, in America much more so even now than than Europe. But um, so I'm excited. I just now signed up as we uh, are speaking to Young Voices because I want to stay connected and I feel like we need to have. Um, stronger, especially, and I know we're not here really to talk about the social issues that we address, but, you know, one of the reasons why we've had so many devastating losses, at least in the pro-life arena, um, is because of how engaged the young folks have been in some of those states, including the most recent in Ohio, where they got pummeled. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think a lot of it is because there, there may not be, I mean, I haven't seen the, the stats um after some of these elections because there's one as you know in montana as well a year ago Mm -hmm. um several states we've lost just countless number 
uh, well, not countless. It's probably about seven. I shouldn't say countless, but there's been about six or seven states where they've had constitutional issues regarding the life issue since um, since Roe was overturned. And it looks like it's going backwards. Um, that's actually not the case. I mean, if you look at the, the states who have put up real um, good um, you know, guardrails regarding that issue in states, there have been enormous numbers of young unborn lives that have been saved. And anyway, that's for another conversation in terms of um, – <laughs> how we can recruit folks of your age uh, to, to be in our movement. And, and uh, But we're here to talk about these two articles that you sent me that I've read. One is called How We Spend Matters More Than What We Spend, and the other one is Charter Schools Are Public Schools. Um, you know, I guess the, the first thing is, why don't we start off with the, the Charter Schools Are Public Schools piece because um, I think – it's fair, fair to say that a lot of people are not familiar. Um, they know that there are this amorphous kind of groups out there that are quasi-affiliated with the public schools, and there's a drawing or a, a lottery to get in. But, but why don't you just start off by by describing the charter school movement on a on a on a national level, and then bring it down to how that plays out here in Alaska. Absolutely. I would love to. And the reason I wrote this is that I think there's a pervasive myth out there that charter schools are somehow, you know, taking public funds and using it to fund a private school. And that's simply not true. Charter schools are built and indeed, in fact, are public schools. They just have more autonomy with, you know, their offerings. They can have tailored curriculum. They can vary up their teaching methods. They can do different management structures. And all of that flexibility means that they can better serve the needs of their students. And so in this article, I would love if you all would check it out on alaskapolicyforum.org. But charter schools really found their niche in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. It devastated the district's buildings, wiped out almost all of them. Um, And honestly, they kind of had to start from scratch. And that school district was not doing well. Uh, There were some really, uh, just really poor outcomes across the board. Um, And now, now when we look at New Orleans, it is entirely a charter school district. There are no uh, schools that are what we would consider a traditional public school. Students aren't assigned to a school based on their residential address. Um, parents enter the lotteries. They pick a couple choices that they would be happy to send their kid to. They pick those charters and they would be able to serve their needs better. And New Orleans graduation rate has risen from 54% in 2004 to 78% in 2021. And it increased test scores, high school graduation rates, college attendance, and college graduation rates. Uh, and it's reducing achievement gaps between demographics. So that's kind of some of the history. I would love to talk more about it, but I think it's really important to see that charter schools are working in certain areas, at least, um, that they really found their niche. They've picked up steam over the past two decades, and now Alaskans get to benefit from charter schools, too. Well, and we, uh, you know, one of them that comes to mind, and it's just because I, uh, it got my attention because I used to work out an Alaska club in East Anchorage off of DeBar, and there was an Alaska Native, I think it was an Alaska Native charter school that, that mm-hmm. opened up in um, in one of the elementary schools on on DeBar and close to that area over by Costco. And 
Um, but then it closed. And I remember thinking, oh, I wonder, because it seems like that for sure would have been something that would have thrived. I remember hearing about the mm -hmm. curriculum and all, and all that. But um, are you familiar with that particular school? And, and, and was it a charter school? And, and any idea on why it closed down? I'm not familiar with the case. Um, I would definitely say charter schools would be ripe for that kind of thing because that is just, you know, curriculum changes. That's something that you can do to better serve a specific population. Parents who want to go to that school can enter the lottery to go, or they just have a seat if there's there's uh, more seats than demand. So I, I think it's a really ripe area for it, uh, but I'm I'm sad to hear it's closed. Well, and I, again, I'm not really sure if it was a charter school, what the story was behind yeah. it, but it's hard to imagine that there's so much resistance because of the, 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 the you know, the facts that more money has put been put into the public schools and the results have been not improving. In fact, we'll talk about that after this break in, in terms of the other article that you wrote on how we spend the money is more important than how much. Folks, we're talking with Sarah Montalbano, and we'll be right back here on I'm Glad You Said That. Hey guys, welcome back. Jim Minnery here on I'm Glad You Said That. I'm speaking with Sarah Montalbano uh, at Alaska Policy Forum. And although she's the policy manager for Alaska Policy Forum, she writes and has been the education policy director um, for a while, and she's dealing with other issues now. But we were talking about charter schools being public schools and the the reality of um, – and I don't want to you know make this political right away, but I would say in the end it, it, it does seem to come down to a division of the donkeys and, and the elephants when it – when it comes to um, expanding school choice, that's not always the case. Uh, as you mentioned, the the scenario in Louisiana, New Orleans, I'm certain that there were all sorts of Democrats that were very impressed in, in wanting to expand the number of charter schools based on what they saw. But are we seeing that divide um, when in our efforts to expand charter schools in the state of Alaska that you're seeing pushback or – you know, I, I have talked to some people that I respect that say, you know, a lot of this pushback to school choice is um, is more bumper sticker sloganeering back and forth. And when you sit down with some of those on the left or the Democrats, they're actually supportive of different methods to um, expand school choice if it's going to seriously improve results. What, what's your take on that? I mean, is it is it as politicized? as I and, and others think it is in terms of uh, charter schools and school choice? It's a really fascinating question, and it's such a nuanced issue, honestly. And I, I think people come to school choice for so many different reasons. There are uh, also just so many different kinds of school choice. So charter schools are one of the most familiar. They're embedded in just most school districts around the country, I would say, have some form of charter schools. There's a lot of options, and they are part of the public school system now. So it just becomes, you know, kind of like a magnet school or, you know, all of these different options. The contention around school choice seems to revolve a lot around the private school choice programs that we see 
popping up in so many other states since the pandemic that have really gained steam like uh, education savings accounts. That basically works like a health savings account. You have a debit card and you pay for your child's education expenses. Uh, you can enroll them in a private school or do some homeschooling or any any conceivable mix that you have. Um, and I think a lot of people rightly worry that maybe we're taking resources from public schools. Maybe kids aren't going to get the same quality of education that they get in public schools. And so it's a really nuanced issue. But when we look at the polling, when we describe exactly what these programs do, 70, 80 percent of parents and the general public across the board, no, no matter your demographics, your, your political beliefs, all of these people agree in, at least in principle, to school choice measures because they understand like this is how you get your child a customized education that is going to help them perform. Like they are going to get the education they need because they have these choices. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I, I want to believe, you know, all that uh, that I've heard from some on the left that would say they're really, truly there for the kids. And then sometimes it's it's difficult to look into the numbers and see how much is spent on administration um, as opposed to teachers um, salaries, which, which I am a fan of, of you know, performance based um, uh, measures to be in place, which would would not be possible with the current um, union. But I, I, I want to believe that those who are in the the education arena on both sides of the political aisle are there for the kids. Um, and yet, you know, we, we still see this demand for um, more and more funding, despite the fact that there seems to be almost an inverse relationship, which is just insanity. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in the public school systems in Anchorage. I went to Lake Otis Elementary, Wendler Junior High, and East Anchorage High School. And you go back and look at, um, you know, my class of 83 and the amount of money that was being spent that time compared to now per capita and the amount and the SAT scores and kids who go to college. And um, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things mm -hmm. that are related to that in, in, in that we also need to, I think, expand the number of vocational options in school for kids. And I don't know if there's charter schools that do that. I mean, um, actually, for that matter, is uh, they used to call it, they used to call it King Career Center. I don't even know what it's called now, but um, mm -hmm. it, is that considered a charter school as well? Do you know? Uh, I don't know about King. I actually went to Matsu Career and Technical High School in uh, the Valley, so I am familiar and intimately. Uh, it, uh, career Tech is considered, I think, mostly a magnet school. So there was an application process. Now I believe it's a lottery. I don't believe it's officially a charter school, but uh, it operates in, I think, largely the same matter. I am a huge fan of vocational training for students. Um, for me, I never had any real doubt that I was going to go to college and attain a degree in something. But being able to go and explore some of these career paths in high school for a low or nothing cost to me uh, was a huge help in figuring out what I wanted to do and gave me some useful skills along the way. Uh, so I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, of that kind of education, too. 
Well, one of the things that came up as well in my research was um, this whole uh, the Anchorage School Board uh, voting to take over the the charter school known as a family partnership that a lot of people have uh, very strong opinions about. A lot of people don't know the story behind that. But in a nutshell, 30,000 foot level, can you let people know uh, kind of what happened there and why and how that plays into this whole mix of when the school board in this case, a very liberal one, uh, you know, one conservative out of seven, I believe. Um, but they voted six to one uh, on party lines, you could say, even though they're not party uh, officially, to dissolve the school's charter. Um, and uh, what, what, what was the story behind that? I would have to admit I'm not all, all familiar with the specific, specifics of the case. Alaska Policy Forum saw that, you know, all of these parents who were at Family Partnership or some other Anchorage correspondence schools were looking at this um, ruling by the Deputy Attorney General on the use of allotment funds and were really concerned about where they were going to take their children. So we jumped up in response and hosted a webinar uh, with several uh, correspondence school leaders from around the state to kind of let people know about their options. Um, I would have to say, though, I'm not familiar with the politics of the situation. Um, charter schools, because they have this contract, can have their charters revoked. Uh, that's just part of the model. It helps hold them accountable. But what I would say is that Alaska only has um, one authorizer for school board, one type of authorizer, um, and that is, you know, local school boards. Um, so. A lot of other states have other authorizers. They have multiple authorizers. Uh, some places let their state education agency authorize charter schools. Some have independent chartering boards or universities, things like that. And so in cases like family partnerships, in other states, maybe they would have an opportunity to apply with a different authorizer and get a charter on some new terms uh, to continue operating. But this kind of thing, charter schools, often find themselves under regulations that are in some ways more onerous than those that traditional public schools have, and they are held accountable by having this charter revoked and removed. So what a lot of places are doing are opening private micro schools in other states where they can do all of these things, and they just say, you know what, let's just open a private school instead. Uh, so we're seeing almost the over-regulation of the charter school movement right now uh, in the past 20 20 years, um, and this kind of post-pandemic shift we're seeing uh, with skepticism that way. Well, you know, I, and I hate to point out just that one, you know, case, because as far as I know, there hasn't been any other usurpation. I don't know if it's the usurpation officially of power by the school board. I mean, I know that there are some people, even within family partnership, that thought that there was a lot of stuff going on that was that was dysfunctional. And, you know, I, I really don't know all of the details other than it made the press and there are a lot of opinions about it. But the reality is that um, charter schools are here. They're they're very much available. Um, is there a single place that people can go to find out about all of the charter schools in Alaska? That's a fascinating question. I hope that there are options out there. Um, what I would say is EdChoice is a great resource. Uh, EdChoice.org, that's the Milton Friedman uh, Family Foundation that talks a lot about school choice. And Alaska has some really fantastic pages there where you can find out some of your options. 
I would also have to recommend on the correspondence school side, so if you're thinking about homeschool or some sort of uh, hybrid homeschool where you take a few classes somewhere else, that would be something. Come to alaskapolicyforum.org. We have a page uh, for our uh, CSAP information uh, that gives you some information about allotment amounts and uh, potential schools and their private school partnerships. So I'd okay. say with, those are at least two resources. All right. Well, we're going to talk with um, uh, Sarah Motobana um, for our final segment here, folks, on school choice. We'll be right back. When peace like a river, hey, guys, welcome back. Uh, really went by fast, Sarah. We're speaking with Sarah Motobano. She's the policy director at Alaska Policy Forum, and she covers um, several different issues. Very sharp young lady from the Valley that um, that you really should be following her on Alaska Policy Forum um, because she's one of Alaska's own that is really making a name for herself. And um, so you go to alaskapolicyforum.org and uh, sign up for their alerts and, and some other articles that Sarah has written. But one of the ones that I wanted to cover in this last segment, Sarah, was uh, one that you sent me. And I, I think it's a fascinating um, discussion. But my, my take has always been that we just spend way, way more than we need to. And I, I, I stand by that in terms of education um, and how much waste um, is uh, is spent on in the education arena. Um, but your article that was written November 15th in the Alaska Policy Forum is, is titled um, How We Spend Matters More Than What We Spend. Um, and so what is the premise that, uh, and I, I, I love this edunomics lab that you mentioned from Georgetown University. So this is not some far, uh, far flung right wing, you know, conspiracy group. Um, this is <laughs> legit study that you're mentioning. And I think that that's very um, important. I'd love to talk to my liberal friends about this article, but uh, give us the, the 30,000 foot level and then we can dive into some of the details. Absolutely. So the message I have, my takeaway from this graph that the Edunomics Lab at Georgetown University has put together is that the way that our financial resources are allocated in the school system matters a whole lot more than the amount that we spend. And I actually received a lovely note from a young, young lady at the Edunomics Lab today saying, you know, this is a data-driven approach. And that's how I feel about it, too. Here is the data. Um, and so we plot uh, the Edunomics Lab, actually. I did not collect any of this. They plot all schools, every individual school that they can find, fiscal year 2019 expenditures on the x-axis, the horizontal axis. And then um, on the vertical axis, we have the percentage of these students that are proficient on the standardized state assessment that year. Um, and so what we see, you know, 36% of students were proficient on these averaged exams, and the average spending per student was almost $21,000, and that was in fiscal year 2019. I actually just got to update this chart with 2022, and uh, I've updated the article to reflect that because it's close to 25000 now. Um, so it's really fascinating. But when we look at this trend, you know, we actually see that as a school's per-pupil expenditures increase from left of the chart to the right of the chart, 
the percentage of proficient students declines. So that is not necessarily a causal effect. There's a lot more going on in this chart than simply that up and down relationship. But we can't really say that, you know, adding more money is fixing things. In fact, you know, the schools that are getting the most money are those that are not performing well. Um, so that is my first big takeaway from this chart. Are you ready for the second one? Oh, yeah. Bring it on. All right. Okay. This ties in. The school's spending less than about $10,000 per student are not only consistently performing near or above the statewide proficiency average, they were also almost entirely correspondent schools or charter schools. In fact, I don't recall seeing any that weren't. So what I see from this is that, you know, these innovative education models are demonstrating the ability to do more with their limited resources. They're doing just as well, if not better, than the traditional public schools, and they're spending a lot less while they're doing it. It's stunning. I mean, I, I, I would love to see, you know, some of the uh, educrats and, um, you know, uh, education committee members in the Senate and House, you know, addr address this very factually based um, article. And I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think that it's not just um, this incessant desire to feel better about themselves if they increase the per student amount, um, regardless of the outcome. I mean, but at some level mm -hmm. you have to, you know, when you start seeing things recently about math scores or, or math in general being um, racist, um, you know, there's just these unbelievably, um, you know, uh, illogical statements, but that are coming out of uh, arenas that you would have more respect for initially. Um, and then all of a sudden now you're, you're seeing, well, the, the scores don't matter or, or, or math doesn't matter or this or that. I, I guess you know, at what point can we all just agree, if ever, that it's not a good investment right now in terms of continuing to pour money into it. And I don't know, you know, I, I, I chatted with uh, a gentleman um, on the show a mm -hmm. couple of weeks back um, about, you know, they're, they're, they're advancing a, a school choice uh, bill in the Senate right now. And we're working to try mm -hmm. to get Senator Sullivan on board and fascinating individual, but um, you know, uh, his his mindset was simply, um, you know, every kid, and it's just, it sounds so uh, cliche, but every kid deserves the best education they can get. And it, can we, it just seems like we should be able to agree left or right that that's not happening right now. And that, you know, we're not blaming teachers necessarily, but we have to be able to um, wrap our heads around this reality that you've provided in this wonderful article um, that we can shift resources. Uh, I don't know what the what the recommendation is as the policy form. What recommendation based on this article do you guys have for the Alaska legislature? I think, well, first of all, we've covered a lot of ground here. I would say first uh, that you know, when we need to be thinking about where exactly these dollars are going. So I'm not saying that 
more money might not help the problem. Maybe not. Uh, but we certainly have tried pouring money in and not seeing the results. Um, there's a fellow at the Hoover Institution I quote in this article, you can't trust that you can just drop in a pile of money and expect good performance to come out. And so, you know, we need to think about productive uses. If these do new dollars are going to growth in administration, if they're paying for new administrator salaries instead of new or better teachers, uh, if they're just being absorbed in public pension obligations to former employees or current employees, that's not going to be as effective as actually reaching the classroom. Uh, they need to benefit the classrooms, you know, maybe teacher salaries. I'm sure they're too low. Uh, student outcomes, it, those are too low too. And so I am definitely thinking about those issues carefully. And the other thing I would say is zooming out on the traditional public school system as it is from a historical perspective, it makes a lot of sense why we are in this position, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that the public schools are broken. It just means that they were built to do something different than what we are asking for now. Schools 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, back in the Industrial Revolution, you know, all of these schools, they were primarily just teach our kids how to read the Bible. That was a lot of it. And then the common school model, Prussian model, uh, you know, that was more for, you know, are we training good factory workers? Can they memorize things? Can they stand and sit for long periods? Um, and those just aren't the skills we value today. Uh, so I think there's a lot of tinkering and reform that can be done. Um, and I think so much of it just goes beyond the number that is being talked about. It doesn't matter too much if the number is shifting around in all of these public policy debates uh, as much as it needs to be, you know, how are we using it? No, I couldn't agree more. And I'm guilty um, as much as the next conservative out there that would just say spend less. Um, and you know the other side would say no, spend more. And and those are those are two um, those are two shallow of statements. In, in other words, what you've dove into, which is so important, is to say how can we really adjust our mindset of looking at how the dollars are being effective or not being effective, and and the results are there for for anyone to to be able to see it's not biased in any way shape or form although i'm sure that you'll hear hear otherwise from some folks who read the article <laughs> but sarah we're ending our show and it's way too quick i can't thank you enough for being on today i want to um, make it somewhat regular if we can especially as the uh the session comes up i'd love to chat with you about some of the things that are going on down in juno um and anyway, just keep up the great work that you're doing. Really blessed to have you um, stay in the state and continue to do your good work. And uh, the Policy Forum is certainly um, a better place because of your presence there. So thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay, guys. Remember, go to Alaska Policy Forum. Dot .org they have all sorts of wonderful things going on um and we're blessed as a state to have them in uh in the great land so god bless we'll see you next week here on I'm glad you said that thanks for tuning in